it's B-Movie Bonanza. <laughs> hey, everybody. It is Scotch from Jack FM. And Bob Harris from the Mighty 790 KFGO. And we're doing something a little bit different this time around. We have a special guest on the phone line with us. Yeah, you know, I was going off and telling uh, Bob what a big fan I am of Dick Miller and, of course, the films of Roger Corman. And he says, you know, I've got a, a phone number of Beverly Gray, who used to work with Roger Corman a while back. And uh, what, we could give her a call up and talk to her. And I was so excited when I heard that. <laughs> Even wrote an unauthorized biography of Roger Corman as well. She knows her Roger Corman's and Dick Miller's inside and out. Beverly Gray is our special guest on the B-Movie Bonanza. And uh, Beverly, how you doing, kiddo? I'm doing fine. Uh, I'm impressed that you think that I know R- Roger and Dick inside and out. I'm not sure I want to know the inside. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you have a book that's called Roger Corman, Blood-Sucking Vampires, Flesh-Eating Cockroaches, and Driller Killers. And it's an unauthorized story of uh, Roger Corman. And I hear he wasn't really that that thrilled with your book. Uh, yes, that is true, although he doesn't talk about it. As the book, by the way... Uh, came out originally in the year 2000. It was reprinted in paperback, updated uh, a couple of years after that, and then updated once again in 2013. So it brings you almost up to the present. And I worked for Roger for many years uh, in two different periods, both at New World Pictures and at Concord New Horizons. So I do know my, my way around Roger Corman, and I remember Dick Miller very well. What was your, uh, what was your role under Roger's employee? At first, Roger hired me out of grad school, which he was want to do. He liked people with fancy degrees. I was getting a Ph.D. in American literature at UCLA, and I was hired to be his, what he used to call his ace assistant, which meant that I went from doing very literary things in the UCLA Department of English to working on Candy Stripe Nurses and Death Race 2000. And especially in those early days, uh, it was a very small company, and you did pretty much everything. Uh, my very first day, I was handed a script. It was the script for Cockfighter that was going to be directed by Monty Hellman, and I was told, just write your notes, what you think of this draft. And I discovered I had a certain talent for that, and attended a lot of story meetings and was called the assistant story editor, but I also did some distribution stuff. I wrote publicity releases. I worked in casting. I scouted locations. I, at one point, uh, we dubbed a film, a science fiction film called Fantastic Planet or Planet Sauvage into English. I was involved with the casting and the production of our English language soundtrack on that. And then one day Roger said, take a letter. So I did it all. It sounds like it. (laughs) It's funny that you say it was a very small company because I've noticed when I go back and watch movies like like Candy Stripe Nurses, you see the same, a lot of the same faces from film to film. And, And Dick Miller, again, is one of those faces that pops up in almost every Roger Corman movie. I was very fond of Dick. I got to know him in that early period in the 70s. And I didn't realize at the time that he was kind of a classic guy. I must admit, I had a very um, warped kind of childhood. I did not watch Roger Corman movies growing (laughs) up. I had to kind of get my Roger Corman education a little bit later. So I didn't realize what a class act Dick was, but I knew he was a very sweet guy. He was always around the office. He was very funny. Uh, He gave me once an autographed picture of himself to put on my wall, which got me quite a laugh. It it, uh, said to Beverly, I'll never forget our 
Romantic Nights in Temecula. This is where we had just come from a location <laughs> shoot, and where you used to nibble in my ear and whisper, what's for lunch? <laughs> so, I was very fond of this guy. And he, you know, when you were a Corman person, of course, he was known as an actor, but he started out wanting to be a writer and occasionally did write. And if you remember it, who could forget? TNT Jackson, he wrote the original drafts of that and then had a big fight with Roger and they didn't speak for years. So I remembered him in that kind of writing capacity as well. That's so funny because I just watched TNT so did Jackson, I. did you too? Yeah, did you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, TNT so, Jackson, she'll put you in traction. Yes. <laughs> who could forget? So was Roger, I mean, was he kind of vindictive like that? Like if you had a, if you rubbed him the wrong way, you were, you were out of the picture for a while? Yeah, uh, it, it's wonderful. When I talk to people who've met Roger, particularly a film festival or something like that, they always say, what a nice guy. And I always answer, yes, he can be. <laughs> because, yes, he, he can be nice and even not just publicly nice. He's been known to do some really kind and generous things for people. But that's not all of him. He's He's a man who's basically a little bit cold, a, a little bit self-centered, as I guess most people in Hollywood are, and he does what's best for Roger, and sometimes that means being gracious, and sometimes it does not. Sometimes it means being extremely petty and just enjoying one-upping everybody else. So if you would like to hear this story about uh, my book, I will be glad to tell you. Oh, well, well, absolutely. I came to Roger. I had been out of his employ for about a year at that point, and I came to Roger and said, I have a contract to write a book about you. Now, this wasn't a unique situation. There are a lot of books about Roger, usually by people who want a job with Roger and they're currying favor. But you know, here I'd worked for all these years, and I was going to write a biography, and Roger called me in and said, come in right away. So I did, and he said, you've got to forgive me that I need to do the Roger Corman imitation because... That's what you got to do. Right. Everybody who's always who's ever worked for Roger does the Roger Corman invitation. So here's mine. Beverly, I would be happy to cooperate with you in any possible way as long as you can reassure me that this book will be largely favorable. <laughs> and I didn't quite know what to say to that. Uh, so I said, Roger... You taught me so much. I learned so much and had so many exciting experiences. I want to convey that to the reader. So he liked that well enough. But then he called me a few weeks later and said, I've had second thoughts. He said, I've been burned by a small matter. And what I want is for you and your publisher to sign a legal document saying that I can read your book in manuscript and remove anything I consider derogatory. And... That didn't sound good. I have worked on Roger's own memoir, his as-told-to memoir, and I know that Roger, for a guy who makes schlocky movies, uh, he can be very prickly about his own image. And I knew that handing my manuscript over to Roger to edit as he chose was not the way to write an honest book. And I was not out to write a vindictive book. I was out to write an honest and far-reaching book. So... I had to respond to him somehow. He said, think it over. So 
I let a few weeks slip by, and then I wrote what I consider one of the better letters I've ever written in my life, which said, Roger, you have taught me so much about the exciting world of low-budget filmmaking, and I've learned many important lessons from you, and one of the most valuable I learned is the importance of artistic independence. And uh, I kind of left it go at that. And he came back to me at least one more time and sort of dangled the opportunity to interview some famous people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I realized, fortunately, at that point, I had many, many friends and colleagues from the Roger Corman days, and they had led me to other people. And I wanted, and these people wanted, a true and honest book. They didn't want another Roger Corman puff piece. He said, I have heard that you are planning to write a hatchet job. And I remember that very well because I'd never heard the phrase before. It sounded very ominous. (laughs) Uh, I said, Roger, you know, you plucked me out of graduate school where I was, you know, I laid it on because he he loved that part of my, my background. And I said, Roger, what I am going for here, I don't want to write anything harsh. I don't want to write anything unfair. I want to write something truthful and accurate and intelligent that is worthy of being on the shelves of the finest libraries in the land. And I just left it at that. I didn't want anything from him. He could dangle in front of me all sorts of opportunities to talk to all sorts of famous Corman alumni, and I didn't want that. I wanted an honest and accurate portrait. And my book is in the Library of Congress, and it means a lot to me. And if it had been up to him, any of the less than flattering uh, stories about yeah. him would have been excluded, I assume. <laughs> Absolutely. And and I knew this from personal experience, just from going through his manuscript for his book, and also a young, fledgling screenwriter who came to me who'd gotten an assignment to write sorority house massacre seven or something like that (laughs) had said to me you know why i wrote that biography of roger don't you so that i would have the opportunity i have right now to be writing a roger corman script and he told me quite frankly and i know other people have done this too that he came to roger with his book which was came out years before mine and said what do you think and roger went through it and changed some things and removed some things and that isn't the way I write books. Is it true that uh, because of that, there were certain things you were excluded from? Like I heard that you had originally uh, done a piece for the extras for that Slumber Party Massacre box set, and they, they removed that from the from the extras? I'm impressed you know that. Yes, that, that is absolutely true. Uh, and, and I had such a good story, too, because my son is in that movie. My little seven-year-old son is in that movie, and I had, had a great story about it, but Suddenly, Roger discovered I was in there and didn't want any part of me in there. And the people who put together that box set for the Shout Factory were were pretty darn disappointed, as was I. What what part did your son play in that movie? Slumber Party Massacre 3, which was... Oh, it's in 3, okay. ...was put together very quickly for the usual reason that there was a (laughs) space at the studio (laughs) to make the movie. So, you know, everybody was gathered, you're going to direct, you're going to write... And the villain in that one is sort of a boy-next-door type who turns out to be sort of a killer, rapist, terrible person. And in order to give that villain a backstory, it was the usual thing where he had been molested by an evil uncle. And they decided that they needed to suggest that. So what they wanted was a little kid who was going to be 
you know, the future grown-up serial killer in a, in a photograph with this sinister-looking uncle where you'd know that something was amiss. They were looking for a little kid. I had a little kid, a cute little kid, I hasten to add. (laughs) We went down to the studio, and one of the tech people there was a very nice guy, a family man, but, you know, if you put dark glasses on him, you know, he looked kind of sinister. And and my son, being the kind of kid he was, crawled all over this guy, and they took a lot of pictures, and uh, that was going to be that. And... Then somebody decided that really wasn't enough, that it was kind of a little too subtle for the, mm. <laughs> for the Corman audience. So they were going to write some scenes, um, which presumably would, would feature my son as the little kid, you know, dealing with this uncle. And nothing physically happened in the scenes, but the innuendo was, was heavy. And at first, like any mom, I said, wow, this is cool. My son's going to be in a movie. You know, he's going to have lines and everything. And then my second thought was, uh, what if this warps him for the rest of his life? Yeah, you don't want that. <laughs> so I decided that maybe it wasn't the best possible use of my son's leisure time. And I, I said, no, thank you. And, uh, and they eventually didn't do the scene. Right. Uh, well, but, I'm very familiar with the movies. So I, I've, I've, I've seen the picture anyways. Yeah. Oh, that that's very cool that you know Slumber Party Massacre 3. I mean, it... it it happened so quickly uh, that everybody involved with it is a little amazed at anybody. You know, <laughs> yeah. Well, is well, we're following the fate of this movie. We've uh, we've uh, already uh, reviewed uh, the first one, so number two and three will be coming down yeah. the road here very shortly. See, I, I watched good. I watched a lot of uh, like tacky B movies in the late '80s and early '90s because I worked at a video store, and, and two of my favorite directors were uh, Jim Wynorski and Fred Olin Ray. And whenever I would hear interviews with them, they I would, can see what kind of guy you are. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> they would always be. Talking about Roger Corman, and I was, you know, kind of a kind of a newbie, and then I started realizing, oh, look at this, Sorority House Massacre Two, that's produced by Roger Corman, and Death Stalker Two, and Dinosaur Island, these are all produced by Roger Corman. So I started going back and discovering all these movies, and pretty soon I was watching Rock and Roll High School and Slumber Party Massacre and Eat My Dust. I mean, all these movies that came probably before my time, but yeah, just yeah. I, I find them all just fascinating. Now, Eat My Dust, wasn't that the Ron Howard one? It's a Ron Howard one, and, yeah. And you've, you've also written a book on Ron Howard, too, right? I have indeed, yes. Mm-hmm. And I spoke to Ron Howard for the Corman book about... He's very proud of his Corman roots and, and tells the story, which, of course, you know, Roger embroiders, and, and everybody embroiders things when they... Uh, Hollywood types, but but Ron, if you want to hear that story, of course. Sure. Uh, yeah, all right. This is a podcast. So, we got as much time as you want. <laughs> oh, I see. Oh, you'll be there f- for the rest of the afternoon, then. <laughs> you know, we would probably be happy to do that. <laughs> no, but go ahead. Okay. Uh, well, I'm just settling in here. Uh, Ron Howard, of course, wanted to be a director for many, many years, uh, even while he was a young kid. He realized that much as he liked acting, he liked being in charge, he was a very orderly mind, he, he wanted to be a director. So when he got to college, and he was in the USC film school as an undergrad, Chuck Griffith, actually, who wrote Little Shop of Horrors and a lot of other things, Death Race 2000, Chuck was going to make a movie called Eat My Dust. And he decided, uh, actually, his children had the bright idea that Ron Howard would be perfect casting as the young 
heroic doofus, you know, in, in <laughs> Eat My Dust. So Chuck went to Roger and suggested this. Ron Howard's a very savvy guy, as you probably know at this point. Uh, he came to Roger and said, I understand you want me for this movie. Now, at this point, Ron Howard is doing Happy Days. Ron Howard is a big star. He can get big bucks, but he wants to be a director. And nobody thinks of him as a director. He's Opie, he's Richie, he's not a director. So he wants to be a director. He comes into Roger and says, I will star in Eat My Dust if you then give me the opportunity to make this script that I have right here. It was called Tis the Season. It was kind of a holiday comedy. Roger is very savvy and says, well, I don't much like this script, but if you star and eat my dust and it's a hit, I will give you the opportunity to write a, another script on the subject of my choosing. And if I like the script that you've written and you're willing to star in it, so we have your you know, box office appeal, uh, then you can direct it. So there were a lot of ifs. Well, Eat My Dust was a very big hit by Roger's standards. And so then Ron has the opportunity to write a script. Um, and he comes up with all kinds of ideas, and Roger turns them all down. And finally he gets an idea for, Roger says, you know, Eat My Dust was such a hit, I want something along those lines. In other words, a teen car crash movie. Uh, he says, that's what I want. That's the kind of story I want. So Ron goes home, and this is the sweetest part of the story. Ron and his father collaborate on this story. Um, and that's fascinating to me because most young men of my acquaintance, when they get their big breaks, don't usually team up with their dad to do it. But Ron, being a thorough professional and a really nice family guy and having a great respect for his father's talents, the two of them get together, and as a very professional team, they work on this script called Grand Theft Auto, which Roger likes. And, of course, it has a starring part for Ron in it, and it's, it's another big hit And by Corman's standards. It's about a young man and his young girlfriend who are being kept apart by her nasty father. They want to get married. They steal the father's Rolls Royce, and they head across the desert. Uh, to get to Las Vegas to get married. And because of the situation, everybody's after them. The father is after them. I mean, the, the girl's father, uh, the press is after them. The highway patrol is after them. Everybody's after them. So there's all these cars out there in the desert crashing into each other. Made money. Roger was happy. Ron Howard was suddenly a director. After Smokey and the Bandit in the 70s there, those drive-in movies, you could just crank out anything as long as there was cops chasing a, <laughs> chasing a trucker or a car. I mean, there were lots of the car crash yeah, movies pretty, back then. Pretty funny movie, actually. Mm -hmm. And Ron remains proud of it and proud of his Corman um, backdrop. Oh, and there's a line that Roger loves to repeat, that, and, and Ron mentions it as well, when Ron just felt that for the grand finale of his movie, which had to take place in a big, um, like a coliseum kind of uh, raceway. He needed crowds, and as the cost of extras being it was, what it was, and Roger's budgets being what they were, he can't really afford the kind of crowds he wants. And he appeals to Roger, could you give me more money so I can have a decent crowd? And Roger says, no, I can't. But he says, I tell you what, 
if you do a good job on this movie, you'll never have to work for me again. So (laughs) that came true. Roger loved his own line and has used it many times since. Beverly Gray, our special guest here on the uh, B-Movie Bonanza podcast. Back back to Dick Miller for just a second, uh, Beverly. Yes, I, I just have to ask you real quick. You know, he was in so many movies with Roger. Did Roger like his talent, or was he a good luck charm for the Corman, uh, the Corman uh, movies? Well, I think in the beginning, Roger liked his... Well, with Roger, there's several things you have to like. You have to like talent. You have to like the... The energy, the willing to work hard, and the willing to do anything that it takes. And Dick did anything that it took. He played all kinds of parts for Roger. Uh, In later years, Dick did certainly become a good luck charm, as well as a talent for a lot of Roger Corman alumni, for Joe Dante in particular, who was very, very fond of Dick and put him in everything. But he was also used by Jonathan Demme a lot. He was used by James Cameron all those Corman alumni love putting Dick in their movies. They actually also like putting Roger in their movies, and that's another story. <laughs> There's always that knowing wink, too, of a lot of the movies where Dick Miller's end up, they, they call him Walter Paisley from the that's right. <laughs> from Bu- Bucket of Blood. He's got that recurring exactly. role. Uh, You're speaking of such other greats that went through. Steve, you mentioned Steven Spielberg. Jonathan Demme, I think I just saw The Incredible Melting Man again the other day. He dies in that movie, but of course we know what happens to him later on and, and the success, success that he had. What, what, what were some of the other uh, famous... Uh, uh, directors and writers and went through uh, Roger Corman's uh, uh, list of folks there. Okay, I think you mentioned Spielberg. He is one who did not. Oh, Scorsese, uh, I meant. Them... I meant Scorsese. Yeah, <laughs> Scorsese for sure. Uh, even back in my era, my first era, um, Scorsese was being mentioned a lot. But the, the earliest ones were Francis Ford Coppola, who was Roger's assistant and then and sort of broke out. Then there was Scorsese, who was a, a film professor, and in fact, a lot of other people like Joe Dante came to Roger through Scorsese, whom they knew as, as a teacher. Much later, I'm ba- jumping around here, much later, James Cameron, that's an interesting story. He was, Roger was doing Battle Beyond the Stars because, of course, Star Wars had come out, and Roger always wanted to be the second one on the bandwagon, so... He suddenly wanted to make his own kind of outer space movie. Uh, for that that reason, he actually set up for the first time ever a, an actual studio. He owned a, a little studio in Venice, California, and he was going to make this special effects movie. And James Cameron and a buddy of his, who became a buddy of mine, uh, which is how I know my Cameron stories, um, <laughs> Uh, James Cameron first came to Roger and said, I've invented a special super-duper front projection device that would be great in your movie. And the thing didn't work very well, but James Cameron being very inventive and very ambitious in the course of that one movie, he started out manufacturing this device that didn't work very well, and then he became the art director, and then the next thing you know, he was... uh, (laughs) You know, next next thing you know, he's he's uh, directing <laughs> the next movie. Uh, he he just his trajectory was very fast. He also met and married Gail Ann Hurd on the 
set of Battle Beyond the Star. Yeah, some pretty well, respectable, respectable looking special effects in that movie, and it, it showed you could you could climb up the ranks pretty high there. You could start out bottom rung and be a big name director in uh, pretty short That's work. That's really true. Well, I'm glad the special effects looked good, but the, the art direction, the interior of the spacecraft, it was. Styrofoam boxes of McDonald's hamburgers, spray-painted <laughs> silver, and they looked terrific, but the only problem was that if anybody, if there was any kind of fight scene and anyone was shoved against the wall, <laughs> <laughs> right, the styrofoam, the styrofoam which would... Uh, crack and, and, and shatter, and then they'd, everyone have to go out and buy more hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we're coming up on a time here. We're probably going to have to wrap up this podcast. You know, Beverly, we may have to do this again sometime, because well, this anytime, has been a lot of fun. fun for me to go down memory lane. There's lots and lots of stories. Uh, there are Jim Wynorski stories, I assure you, and there's a lot more Dick Miller stories. Oh, Scotch's eyes are lighting yeah, up now. <laughs> we're going to have to do that. Yeah, you know, it's so true, because there is a, there's a mystery conception sometimes people will say oh you like those bad movies but there's a difference between bad movies and then something that's just got that good b movie aesthetic to it and i have a tough time explaining it to people who who will just push any movie on me and think i'm gonna like it but there's got to be just that right mix of you know the the beast and the blood and a little bit of nudity in there dick miller if you get a chance to throw him in you know and, and, and those roger corman movies just have it yeah it's really true that there there is junk i mean i remember once i said to somebody that in, in my second stint with Roger, I was my title was story editor, and somebody said to me, "Really, Roger Corman movies have stories?" Well, <laughs> yes, they do. Of course, they do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we worked very hard on those scripts to make them, you know, within the limits of what we knew we could do, uh, to make them exciting and funny and. Uh, you know, they were a good ride. Well, thanks, Beverly. We'll have to do this again. And again, uh, if anybody is interested in picking up the book, I know that uh, you can still get it on Amazon, Blood-Sucking Vampires, okay. Flesh-Eating Cockroaches, and Driller Killers. That's the unauthorized Roger Corman story by uh, Beverly Gray. And it's important to get the third edition because that'll bring you really close to the present, although I can top it a bit because one of the dramatic things that happened around 2013 was Roger's son suing him. Uh, there was a very dramatic lawsuit, which is finally on the brink of being settled. We'll have to get to that next time. <laughs> hey, Beverly, too, before you go, let the folks know about your blog. Oh, I'd be glad to. And I want to mention one more thing. My, You mentioned my Ron Howard book, but my most recent book, a little bit uh, classier topic, I suppose, <laughs> is uh, Seduced by Mrs. Robinson, How the Graduate Became the Touchstone of a Generation, which is about the film The Graduate, which I contend has had a very big impact both on Hollywood and on uh, our American culture. That came out at the end of 2017, which was the 50th anniversary of that film. Uh, and my blog is called Beverly in Movie Land. Uh, you can get to it at uh, www.beverlyinmovieland.com. Uh, I describe it as being about movies, movie making, and growing up Hollywood adjacent. Excellent. Beverly Gray, thank you so much for joining us on our B-Movie Bonanza podcast here. I really appreciate it. Lots of fun. Take care now. Bye-bye. See you at the movies. Bye-bye. That's going to wrap it up. I'm Bob Harris from the 9790 KFGO. And I'm Scotch from 1019 Jack FM. 